We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. I'm caught between two generations. What I've realized has helped me a lot is that I always look at how can I value the new way or how can I value the old way. Before, like, my old self wants to just, like, smash down the new thinking or what people in the industry are saying coming up. I, I look at things I'm like, well, what can I take from that? You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Rich Cherisi is a prolific New York City chef and empire builder behind some of the most celebrated and buzzed about restaurants in the country, including Parm, Sedell's, The Pool, Carbone, and his newest and most personal venture, Cherisi. Now, I was a fan of Rich's breakout restaurant, Cherisi Italian Specialties, when it opened on Mulberry Street back in 2009. Man, that mozzarella, I still think about it. It was truly one of my favorite dishes in New York City. On this episode, Rich and I talk about those early days, but also more modern times and how the late night dining scene in New York is starting to really get its groove back, man. It's popping. We also talk about his time working at Cafe Baloo back in the day and the importance of the six-day work week for the young chef. We also talk about what it's like to be caught between two generations. Interesting talk here. Really, really, really good one. I hope you enjoy it. Rich Teresi, welcome to Taste Podcast. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm great. It's good to see you. You seem like you are opening a restaurant and about to be reviewed by the New York Times. Uh, that would make sense <laughs> that that would happen <laughs> shortly. How's it go- How are you feeling right now? How you, I feel you- great. Yeah. I feel great. I mean. Fantastic. I really like your food. And I, I, Teresi Italian Specialties was definitely a restaurant that I always remember. And I think about downtown. And we'll get to that. I want to get to like your, you've got Carbone, Sedell's, Parm, The Grill, Dirty French, Santina, Teresi. Am I forgetting one? Um, I must. Yeah, be. but it's fine. It's okay. <laughs> the, the, that's, but those are names that we all know. If you dine in New York or even if you follow food media, they're all great places of great importance and of great status and, and all sorts of things. I want to start just talking about the restaurant is cultural currency. So I'm trying to think the restaurant reservation because I'm in that room. Your restaurant, beautiful space in the Puck Building, huge, big. And I'm like, people dining here are here for your food, but they're here for other reasons. How do you feel about that? I mean, that's just the reality of the world we live in. When you are lucky enough and and blessed enough to have high demand in in a restaurant, I think those things start to happen. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's a society thing. I think that's a social thing. I think it's more anthropology, a study of that, than Mm -hmm. it is have have anything to do with the restaurant. Mm -hmm. It wasn't always like that. You know, when you were working at Cafe Baloo, like I feel like the restaurant was important, obviously, and the reservation was important, but it, it wasn't there was no social media then. So that must have changed things. Social media has radically changed things and not only social media, but the Web in general yeah. access to uh, reservations. People, you know, you're a lot of the book is online. The book used to be an actual book. <laughs> right. Like it used to be an actual book that, that, that the Mater D opened up and like scratched off with pencil and put in, yeah. you know, that was how we were doing things like in the, in the late nineties when, when yeah. I started. So I'm, I feel actually very lucky that I'm, I'm connected to this. Yeah. What is now I see, like, you know, I don't, I still feel, I still feel very young, but like I, I started in the city when I was 18, 19, mm-hmm. my externship. So I, I've, I just caught the last breath of this old way of doing things um assistance booking with pencils yeah you know coming phone phone calls phone calls calls and books yeah right um uh, a new york thing specifically has always been since since i started in the city at that same time i'd always hear the complaints from the chefs and the and the managers from the very first job i had of like on on how many cancellations there were even even Mm -hmm. in a busy restaurant it's a new york thing to book lots of different reservations and then cancel a lot of them and you take the last one that's a new that's more of a new york thing i mean it's becoming more of a of a global thing now that it's on the internet but that's even that's for me dramatically escalated exponentially with Mm -hmm. with with the just pointing and clicking i'll take that 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 and there's zero repercussion until maybe 24 hours out or something so 
It's just getting into a different thing. It's behavior. Um, yeah. I love that you actually – you showed some gratitude towards being lucky now because I like that because you are in an era where the chef and the restaurant, you can see inside that restaurant every night via a, the Instagram, TikTok, like just two examples every night. I mean before it was almost like a closed circuit. Like it happened, but it didn't really happen, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean I'm, I'm – wildly grateful i'm grateful every, yeah. every, with each passing day i'm more grateful than the previous day yeah i practice that on a daily basis and um in terms of for, for what i do i'm i'm, I'm what, how would i think this is my own opinion but i'm easily one of the most lucky and blessed people that's cool um it's cool to hear that yeah. rich i like that let's talk about last night at Teresi. you know as i said we're we're ra- waiting some reviews it might they might be out by the time um by the time it airs but let's go through a couple times let's talk about 5 p.m what's 5 p.m looking like last night 5 p.m. We open the door on the dot mm-hmm. every day exactly at 5 p.m. A minute before, a minute after. We usually have some people waiting outside that are that are going to join us at the bar. Um, we hold our entire bar open for for walk-ins. We don't book them, so yep. that's what I tell anybody who's you know I get a deluge of <laughs> of um, I, I don't like social media, but I, when I'm on mine, I get a deluge of can you can yeah, you yeah, yeah, can yeah, you yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and um and I I do my best to. Uh, to answer people, especially people that might have enjoyed the original or like yeah. there there's a clear enthusiasm that's yeah. palpable. You know, like those are the ones that I got actually respond to. Mm. People that I I can feel the genuine realness of it. Yeah. And I said, you know, I mean, this is the why we keep the entire bar open for walk-ins. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's not impossible to get in. It might be very, very difficult to get a table you want, maybe in the back dining room. Uh, but like if you want to eat at the restaurant, you can. You just got to show up early. You got to show up early. I mean, that's what a hot restaurant's all about. Let's go to 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock is a moment in time in a restaurant. Yours in particular seems like you're having something. Something's going on at 8 o'clock. What was it like last night? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, we're lucky that the restaurant fills up very early. So, yeah. you know, it's already, you know, before 6, it's already totally full and it's going. There's there's a much different, uh, you know, and I wouldn't say demographic, but there are, there are much different types of people that eat. In the mm-hmm. five to seven, seven to nine, nine to eleven, mm-hmm. they're all different types of people, right? And the people that generally the people that eat in in the first seating at the beginning are people that go to bed early, <laughs> um, are people that drink less, um, are the people that spend less time at the table, they talk less, they're they are softer spoken, like generally. Wow, I'm, you actually can get into that. I'm psychology. generalizing. No, of course you are. This and is not. I like, dined at six, and I'm definitely not a soft speaker. Yeah, no, I am generalizing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I'm saying yeah. by and large, um, yeah. Because when the when the next seating comes in, um, mm-hmm. the restaurant really isn't. I mean, it's it's probably only like ten percent more full. It's not really more full because it's already full. Yeah, but. Something happens when you cross the seven seven thirty threshold. Yeah, like things just get louder. Like yeah. they just get substantially louder, and more bottles start opening, and more drinks start going off yep. the bar. Yep. It's just like yeah. it's a different thing, and maybe it's just the drinking. I mean, people just drink less in the first seating, and like people drink more, they get they get more boisterous, and I don't know. So, Rich, we've talked about five. We talked about eight. What's it like? Last call. Like, what are you as the chef? Very busy restaurant. You're running the show. What's it like at that time? It's great. I mean, it's eleven <laughs> thirty. Uh, I mean, like we seat up until eleven thirty. Yeah. You know, sometimes on the weekends that gets pushed to midnight or past midnight. Um, we don't take reservations past eleven thirty. But coming out of COVID now, I felt that um, you know, there's a lot of nine, nine thirty, ten o'clock closings, and and that makes plenty of sense. And it's really neighborhood dependent where sure. you where you are. And I and I totally understand that. Running a restaurant, it's it's way more efficient to work less uh, to less hours, smaller menu, all those things. But I feel like I'm I'm in the rare position where I had an opportunity in the right part of town, downtown New York, in the right space, in the right neighborhood. Mm-hmm. The, I have a big bar. I feel like I had all the things that lent itself to staying open later, mm-hmm. and and going and going after that that later New York thing that New York is yeah. kind of known for that's been gone for a little bit. I Absolutely. Feel. Do you know what I mean? I so, do. It's great. You, it's well said. Yeah. You know, so I was like, I, I'm going to just go for it and, and stay open later because I believe, uh, I, I believe I was just, I was talking about this before that during, during COVID, the amount of people that were eating after 10 o'clock shrank a lot. Right. Yep. But what's interesting, and this is, this is just my belief, my intuition. Yep. I have nothing to back mm-hmm. this up. 
right? Zero to back this up. But I actually think the number of operators servicing the amount that shrank, shrank a lot more, mm-hmm. right? So now we're coming back and, and, and COVID, coming out of COVID, right? And and I actually think that the amount of people that want to eat out later is is still smaller than it was pre-pandemic, but it's growing and the amount of operators that are servicing them are at an all-time low. Mm-hmm. So I actually think it's the biggest opportunity yeah. ever to serve later. Especially when you have actual service late. Now, you can think about late night slices, late night, you know, Crift Dogs, and like that all does late night. But yeah. you're talking about service. Your restaurants remind me like like when Lafayette was popping at 10, when Public was popping at 10, when Spice Mark was popping at 10. Exactly. I know yeah. what you're saying, that downtown big restaurant – where you just want to go after, and you're, it does get louder because people have been doing shit. Yeah. They've been out having cocktails. Yeah. Or, you know, doing whatever. Hundred <laughs> percent. Let me ask you about. Let me ask you about Teresi Italian specialties. How did that restaurant change your life? I mean, it was everything. We uh, that was me and Mario, and it was a mm-hmm. uh, it was a uh, no no more of me than than what is him. Yeah. It was, it was a fifty fifty thing, and we looked at that as. That was our rocket ship, and we were going to jump off on that. And you know, there's there's so I mean, there's so many stories. The restaurant, it's so hard to yeah to synthesize it. And it took off really in an interesting way. You had the pedigree from Baloo. You had skills. You had chops. But you were doing this this type of cooking. You're from the metro. You're from the area. You're from the Hudson Valley. Uh, Mario's from the area. Yeah, Queens. Queens. So you're doing this thing where you're doing like the throwback Italian American food, but you're doing it with your own your own style. And I think of the Palio mozzarella mm. as a, the great example to, mm. to me. I, I go over that dish a, lo- a little bit and like talk about some of the concepts for that early place. That dish. I mean, we were making uh, sandwiches for um, the airport for JFK airport as a, in a basement in the up, up, upper east side as a way to, <laughs> as a way to pay our bills while we were developing Teresi. Wow. And Mario started making mozzarella, you know, it was one of the things he did for all the mise en place that we were, mm-hmm. half of it was for like, we had a team making these food sandwiches for the airport and, and he did a bunch of things. We both did a few things for that. You know, before we can get to the stuff we really wanted to work on. This was, is like the SIBO catering shit you get like at the airport. I'm sure the sandwiches were pretty dope, though. Yes. This is that <laughs> This is that thing. Um, we, 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 you know, you can't take a real job when you're developing a restaurant. You yeah. have to be all in, you know. So we were doing this like late at night. We would mm-hmm. we would send this food out like 4 a.m. Like we, wow. it was crazy what we were doing. And, and we, would, we were just so, we were just so hungry and scrappy. It was like nothing yeah. could stop us. Um, but anyway, Mario's making this mozzarella. And, you know, I'm, I have a gigantic appetite. Um, I eat everything around me. I'm also incredibly curious. I'm constantly tasting things over and over, even if I've already tasted them 10 times. And I, re- I was watching Mario make mozzarella for one of the first times, and it just looks so silky, cloudy, and unbelievable. Like, it mm-hmm. looked like almost like a cartoon. <laughs> they would come out of, like, a cloudy with a chance of meatballs. Like, it's just, yeah. like, something just, like, I got enraptured by it. So I just went over one day and just stuck my hand in it while he's making it and I ripped off a piece mm. and he gave me that look like why are you touching my like why are you digging your dirty hand in here <laughs> and I just took it I walked around and I ate it and I couldn't believe how good it was mm. it was like the, it was easily the best bite of mozzarella that I ever had um mm. But I started thinking, should I like it that much? What am I, what is it? <laughs> you just questioned, like, should I actually yeah, like this? Yeah, should I like this? Right, like am I a much? real chef? Should yeah. I like this fonzarella? Yeah, Just because yeah. it's not, you know, traditionally, it's not been, hasn't been made yet. You know, it's, he's melting it. Yeah, it's, it's not like the buffalo style from, from, you know, yeah. Naples, you know. Yeah, and he's not done making it. He's pulling it, right, you know. It's pulling. like, so I started yeah. thinking, what do I really know about mozzarella? <laughs> and I started questioning myself. But like, you know what, I, I, I don't know a ton, but like, I, what, one of my best, what I consider one of my best, um, points uh, skills is is knowing what's delicious is yeah in texture and, and flavor yeah. it's one of my every chef has a variety of different things that they're actually that mm-hmm. that's really good at you can only be a true expert at certain things right so i did it again i went right over and i did it again and i told mario you don't i'm like you don't understand how unbelievable mozzarella is it's like i've never tasted texture <laughs> like that and he just he just scoffed like he was just annoyed with me that i was digging my hands into his stuff and he just like and this is the mozzarella you were making for the airport sandwiches yes okay and he didn't really pay much attention to it which is like incredibly rare because anything i do you say he'd like you know yeah take seriously and get into it but he just i think he just didn't like that i was you know digging into his mise en place and also while he was working yeah 
And he's, you know, Mario can be very traditional too. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, I'm interrupting a mozzarella making yeah, process. Yeah, you're, you're messing up his line. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on, exactly, yeah. exactly. So it took me like a few days, but I kept, I kept going and tasting it. And when I finally got him to taste it. I saw the, the, it was just, just a few days. I saw the look in his eye and, and immediately it hit him. Like rock, I'm like we just gotta do this. This is going on the table, yeah. and so how did it end up being served? I think of Paulio because it seemed like it wasn't a traditional fresh mozzarella. It had a little bit more structure to it, or there was like something about it that felt more commercial. But that was like a good thing. That was a real strength. Yeah, it was. You know, obviously we were not the last thing we were planning on serving was Paulio mozzarella <laughs> at this restaurant we were developing. Uh, it just happened to be that unbelievable, and and yeah, I mean like that texture you won't get like I've made I've made plenty of fresh mozzarella I've made tons mm -hmm. and tons and we did it we actually did it for for Teresa before we stopped doing it but we we developed it tons making our own curd all the yeah. different milks in Pennsylvania New York um and the texture is just different there's something in that that the amount of bite and chew in 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 that one that just made it so special. Yeah. What a special place. I mean, there were so many dishes that come to mind. I think I only dined there a couple of times. It was also a tough table once the reviews started coming in and it was pre-resi. So you had to kind of know someone to get in, but eventually things blew up and you got, you got really big and, and we, I just named all the restaurants at the top, but I have to ask you about Mario and yourself's relationship. Like how do you, and Jeff, of course, but for the sake of this interview, let's just stick with Mario. How do you guys, keep it together. He lives in Miami now. You're in New York. How do you guys talk and communicate and keep it keep it fresh? It seems like you're friends still, unless there's a big secret out there. No, no. <laughs> we're, I mean, like, we're, we've been brothers yeah. like, forever. Yeah. You know, we met at uh, CIA Culinary School, yeah. like, in the first few weeks. Cool. You know, actually, no. Yeah, we met up there, but we met because of, uh, of like, a double date we went on. Oh, cool. That's how we met. We were seeing two different girls, and, and that's... And they are, our girlfriends were friends, mm. and that's how we met. And we went so uh, like we went to the River Cafe, like a fancy meal in the city. Yeah, when we were like eighteen, we Brooklyn. Were, yeah, before Brooklyn was Brooklyn. Yeah, when we first <laughs> when we first got to the school, yeah. the first month or two I was there, we the 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 four of us there might have been six of us actually had a had a like a dinner date at at the River Cafe, and and that's how I met Mary. That's so cool. Did you, were they, call, were the girls culinary students, or were they just, Yeah, you know. Yeah. They, yeah, they were They were at school. You were all We students. were all CIA culinary students. Love that. It's yeah. sweet. So now, like, how do you, do you guys have, like, calendar check-ins? I mean, how do you actually talk about Major Food Group together? I mean, like, a lot, like, a, a lot like how a bigger company would do, you know? Like, we have growing pains like any other company. Right. That's small to medium to large, and, um, you know, sometimes it's, it's really painful, and, uh, but, like, we're um, incredibly positive people. We're positive opportunists as well. We only see um, we don't we don't think there are problems. We only look at things as challenges. And um, yeah. when we need to add something or grow or do something differently, we do it. We pivot on a dime um, all the time. And yeah. that's really one of the biggest, uh, you know. So like we're we're really big into you know the, we're really big into loyalty and a lot of the people that are that have you know taken on these you know much bigger. You know, at this point, kind of C-suite positions are people that have been with us like yeah. during the Teresi days. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And they've they've a, a decent amount of them have been able to have been able to keep up with the growth of the company because you can't just put people in a position no. that just because of how long they've been with you, they have to be able to have the bandwidth and the mm -hmm. skills and aptitude to be able to continue. Um, so we're incredibly lucky with this 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 family that we built. Yeah. And, and and in the beginning, the people that were in the kitchen at Teresi and even in front of the house have proven to be – to have a really big bandwidth and upside. Yeah. So that's that's our biggest, I would say, skill, having people that have been with us since the Teresi They days. know they have like institutional knowledge to use a you know, corporate term. But I feel like when you've got – how many Carbones are there now? I was debating with somebody about this. There's Hong Kong, um, Abu Dhabi. There's uh, Vegas, New York. There's Miami, there's Dallas, so there's six. Six. Yeah. Six Carbones. How do you stay on top of that menu, those menus and the, the recipe development? I mean, those are all very, very different cities to source yeah. ingredients. How do you keep it consistent? How do you keep it New York? Because I would believe that New York is a route for that restaurant. Yeah, so, you know, if you look at the Carbones outside of New York, they're very, they're very, very different. Okay. You know, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're designed by Ken. 
Ken Folk, our designer, and you know, a lot of people will say, oh, you know, Mint Sugar Group, it's splashy, it's glitzy, it's mm -hmm. ostentatious, and and I actually don't think that's true at all, at least for New York. Um, yeah. Maybe you could say Dirty French is a little bit of that, um, but if you look at our New York restaurants and Carbone and the Grilled Therese, they're they're just not. They're more like grand. I mean, the grill's grand. I think it's regal. Oh, sure. Um, I mean, not, come on. It's yeah. a classic building. I mean, it's Cla a landmark. Exactly. Yeah. Like, and, and Therese is very similar. Yeah. You know, like I've seen things that say glitzy and it's just like totally, total wrong word to describe yeah. that building and restaurant. Yeah, the Puck building is not glitzy. I mean, it's it's like <laughs> robber baron era. I mean, it's like old school New York. You know, it's not like artifice. Um, nor, nor what we did to it is glitzy. What no, we did to it's it cool. is We're just honoring what we, it's what we, I mean, like we're New York history guys we love that stuff so yeah. so when you get out of new york though and you go to vegas and you go to miami and you see the carbones there they could easily be considered that you know they could you know louder splashier yeah um you know and that is is, is a little bit more of, of ken's style so um to in terms of maintaining it it's it's actually um there's not there's not a ton of development that goes into carbone it's all about it's all about narrowing down the ingredients and, you know, before we, like we've, we've, from what we were doing at Carbone, like our recipe books, now we train people compared yeah. to how, what we're doing at Dallas now yeah. is totally, totally different. Yeah. I mean, Dallas, the diner is definitely going to be looking for a very different thing. I mean, you're going to have uh, more space, obviously bigger in Texas and it's going to have a different, like, uh, I think spatially it's got to be very, very different. Yeah, I mean, like the space. Yeah, and yeah. these spaces are way bigger. Bigger, New yeah. New York's course. not that big of a restaurant no. like Carbone. It's just not, and it's all you know. It's an it's another old building. It's all yeah. brick. You know, we have some. You know, art is kind of what you notice in Carbone, but like it's pretty classic. You know, so I mean, getting bigger and maintaining the the the, the food and those things is is a lot about training. It's a lot about who you who you have around you at the top. Mm -hmm. It's a lot about training. You know, and like how we would train a cook or a chef now with the programs we have and the and the software we have compared to what we would do like ten years ago is yeah. is like is a really funny thing actually. Yeah, I'm sure it's very very the the growth of the the back office is cool. Let's talk a little bit about your history. Now you worked at Cafe Baloo in an era that. I mean, it's like baseball cards if you're following re New York City restaurants. You've got Andrew Carmelini running the show. You've got yourself. You've got Mario Carbone. You've got David Chang. You've got Ryan Skeen. You've got other guys who have kind of gone on to open some of the most prominent restaurants in America. What was that time like working at Cafe Baloo? It's a wild time. Every, sin every single thing I could possibly hope for in being a 20-year-old, <laughs> um, young, extremely impressionable cook. For me, what I what I always wanted was, you know, I was just going to end up being a French chef. You know, after Cafe Blue, I went and lived in France for six months and traveled all around doing my kind of like that old school stash yeah. thing at the two and three star Michelin. A charming life. Yeah. A charming world. <laughs> I, I did that, just traveling. Yeah. And, and I, I thought I, I thought I would be a French chef, really. So that's – but that environment was – they don't make them like that anymore. No. It's as simple as that. You know, like you, you still, there were still six day weeks. Um, when you say they don't make it like that, it's just like, it's not as intense. It's not as intense. I mean, there are still intense places to work. Yeah. But um, things are getting a lot less intense. And mm -hmm. some of that is good. Um, I see in your eyes that maybe you're hoping. Not hoping, but you're looking back at the time, but maybe you wish there was some of it still left in New York City dining. A hundred percent, I wish. I mean, like, I, the you know, there's a lot of, there's, the way I look at it is, you know, I'm not, I'm caught between two generations, right? I'm not part of the, the young generation. I'm not part of the old generation. Yeah. But I, what I've realized has helped me a lot is I, I, I always look at how can I value mm -hmm. the new way or how can I value the old way? And, and before, like, my old self wants to just, like, smash down the new thinking or what, you know, yeah. the people in the industry are saying coming up before I do that, because that's my tendency. I think it's anyone's tendency who feels like maybe they're part of it, you know, like older generation. I, I look at things I'm like, well, what can I take from that? And I think there's so many, there's so many good things to take from, from a lot of the thoughts of, of how the, the game has evolved and the kitchen has evolved. I mean, Shane talks about a lot on his podcast and his media. I mean, it's definitely you, it, that era, it taught you craftsmanship in a way that probably can't be replicated today. Correct me if I'm wrong just the hours that you had to spend doing things, it's probably not quite there right now. Well, that's the single biggest thing. The time, right? The time. 
and you can never it's it's you can never skip the time. What you can do is you could speed it up because um, everyone's on on their you know phone, which is a computer, every day, and everyone's mm-hmm. watching videos um, that mm-hmm. weren't avail that just weren't available to us when we were learning that. So like, if you are very determined and ambitious, and you want to learn how to be a great cook fast, and you use the tool, the new tools at your disposal, um, you can. You can go. You can go really fast in this new era without working as many hours. And you're okay with that? I'm not okay. It's not what I would do. Right. But I'm. I'm just saying, like, I'm. If I can look at it a good way, how would I look? Yeah, you're at being it? like on the positive side of it. I'm but being you, positive. That's not deep, what deep I. Deep down, think. it's not the way you were trained. That is not, not the way I'm trained. That is not. That is not what I yeah. would suggest doing. I would suggest taking two jobs. Like, if I was if talking to a cook that really wants to get after it. Yeah. How do you check in with your, uh, you know, your your sous chefs and and down? I'm just there a lot. You know, yeah. it's really simple. It's like, time. I'm just FaceTime. You know, I'm I'm around and especially for my top guys, like what they they're it's very clear to them that they know like they have my my contact and my ear and I've always make that very well known to them, like about anything. It doesn't have to be about food, it doesn't have to be about next yeah. year's menu, it doesn't have to be about an event we're doing or anything, it could be anything. Yeah. Um I think knowing that they have that support, um is another one of the things that I've that I've learned has gotten older. You know what I mean? Like that's that's throw it in that bucket. Like yeah. just support. If you're giving the people that are crushing it the the support that you constantly have their back and you constantly have their ear, um, that you you make them stronger for the entire team that yeah. they're, that they're running. I want to segue into talk about rising costs. I've had uh, Kira Kudo, Justin Smiley, Eric Repair on recently. We've talked about rising costs, not just with inflation, but just in general. Post-pandemic, um, just New York City has seen incredible costs. How do you mitigate these incredible rising costs with your with your you know all these different concepts that you run? You know, it's restaurant to restaurant. It's sure, a, it's a different it's a different good set, answer set of variables for respective. Let's talk about Teresa. Let's talk about the one that's that's most focal right now for you. It seems um, almost impossible to make money, even though um, you're not giving the food away. But it certainly seems very hard with that large space to make a lot of money. Well, the larger spaces, everything in business, not just restaurants, the money is in scale. So mm-hmm. the larger spaces are actually a lot more, e- a lot easier okay. to make money. Um, but look, I mean, I'm looking at, we always do an opening thing where we, you know, we, we price everything from the beginning and then things change and recipes change and ingredients change. And then we keep reformatting it. We keep I see. bringing new costs up and they, they bring me the cost, you know, last week. And I'm just, and, you know, to the point that you're making it, like, even though, I believe Teresi is a, a, a knockout, and I don't think we're gonna, ever going to have a problem it, it being packed. But even for me, I looked at like what we should be charging, and I'm like, oh, like that's not what I want to charge. Yeah, you know. So like, what am I going to do? How am I going to change this without changing at all the quality or the sentiment behind the dish that I'm doing? Is is a question I ask myself. And if I genuinely can't change it and I believe that this is integral, I charge. Yeah. And I'd charge unapologetically. Yeah. No, and that's that's really how Major operates. It seems there is no apology for higher prices. And anyone who's listened to this show knows I feel strongly that you should pay for food. Like, it is important to have an equitable operation. And we as Americans do not pay enough for our, our dining out. 100%. Um, we, we've paid way too less for food for so long that exactly. it's warped our brains. And, and yeah. that's a whole other podcast you could have. We've, we've had many. We, it's, <laughs> it's a theme here, but yeah. I think it's important to keep repeating it, um, that certain restaurants are maybe not for every night for certain diners. Um, but how do you answer to, like, Teresa's expensive? Carbone is really expensive, Overpriced, even some people may even say that. How do you respond to that? Um, I don't. <laughs> I don't pay any attention to that. Yeah, I have a product. I believe in it. I stand behind it. Yeah. Um, Carbone. Carbone. Also, there's just so many things that go into this. You know, Carbone serves really big portions. Yeah. Like if you know Carbone. And that pork chop is like forty five, fifty dollars, whatever it is right now. Like, if you know the restaurant, you definitely don't need to eat that pork chop. Yeah, on your own. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you order, if you order smart there, um, 
it's not it's expensive if you're like I'm going to eat an appetizer I'm going to eat a pasta mm-hmm. I'm going to eat a main course and I'm going to eat a dessert like yeah. that's expensive at Carbone but oh my god like you depending on who you are you might not even be able to eat that much like no. it's so much food no right. yeah I mean you, you get some some NBA guys and some NBA, and NFL guys and I'm sure. sure they can figure it out but, but. they're the one percent <laughs> of the people that are eating like right. the, so like and we give you a lot there like yeah. a lot's priced into that for the things we give you in the beginning the things we give you at the end because that's the that's that's a giant part of the ambiance and the and the feeling of generosity I mean you have uh, your your custom suits you have custom your services is trained I mean you clearly put a lot of money into your staff and training ton um I'm glad that you don't respond to that. I think I think Eric, Akira, and Justin had similar responses. I think it's some have said it's in it's impossible to run a profitable restaurant. I mean, you guys are making money though, so I don't I don't know if that's the case. It's definitely not impossible. It's definitely difficult. Yeah, it's it's difficult. And restaurants, what people don't understand is restaurants are just a crazy, crazy business. You know, you got a million inputs, a million variables, and all you're doing your absolute best to squeeze all the variables to give your guests the tightest thing that they remember the last time they came. Because the interesting thing about the interesting about guests is, even though New Yorkers especially like to eat out different places and try lots of different things, human beings tend to go back to what they what they like and they want, right? Um, so, you, and you want to give that to them. That's what mm-hmm. like what you want to give. New them. Yorkers That's, are human beings. Yeah, they're human. That's the thing. They're yeah. human. Hum, you're human beings, right? So. It's 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 very difficult to, to run a profitable restaurant. It it is not impossible, um, but it is very difficult, and it's it's gotten more difficult. And I mean, if if anyone, you know, I, I get worked up when I hear a lot of commentary from um, journalism from restaurant people mm-hmm. or journalists that are in the restaurant world that talk about the business. Because I mean, I have a general thing in life where like I don't put forth. Uh, powerful opinions if I don't have any experience doing something. Mm -hmm. And I think just because um, you might have, you know, graduated from a a very top college and you're a very intelligent person and you could master, you could read restaurants for dummies in 10 minutes and you could know all that register to be 8%, 10%. You could master all the numbers and you could like, and you're smart. It doesn't mean you know if you haven't done it. Yeah. And I promise anybody uh, that really feels they know about a restaurant who writes about restaurants, food or whatever, that if you opened a restaurant and ran a restaurant, you you would have infinite amount more uh, respect and and profound respect for the people that do do it, how difficult it is to do. And and you can't please everybody and the opinions and everything. It's just like it's a crazy thing. I respect it. it. I respect the take. I think you're speaking very truthfully. I, I'm on both sides. My, my sister-in-law owns a pizzeria in North Jersey, and I write books with Dan Holzman and Dookie Hong or both operating chefs with multiple concepts. So that shit is fucking hard. Um, I'm also a journalist and a writer, and I respect the the ability of a writer who has never worked at a restaurant because I think you don't always have to work at a restaurant to understand it. But I see your point. I see No, your you point. don't have to understand it theoretically. <laughs> that's not what I'm talking about. No, I know. That's, that's the part I'm not talking about. You, de- you definitely <laughs> don't need to. I'm, I'm talking about a different thing. No, I, I, I think I, your point's taken. Do you, do you, do you respect no, – no, I'm going to take that back. Do you read any of the, the food writers or critics? Do you have any, anybody you like? I have very mixed opinions and feelings about, about like, critics. Yeah. Um, um, I like food enthusiasts. Sure. Um, I like food experts and food enthusiasts, a lot of them that um, certain, you know, like um, – but critics, I almost think that word should be revised – should, what would it, should it be? It should be maybe like food resident, food expert, or food <laughs> enthusiast. Because mm-hmm. coming out of COVID, especially, like there's no there's no room fucking shit about restaurants. And I think I think a lot of the people in journalism realize that right now because you don't really see any any pans. Nor nor should there be. Like I just don't think you need to talk about what restaurants don't. It's kind of like what your mother tells you: if you don't have anything good to say, don't say it at all. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like you should be talking excited about a spot because they're doing something great. Or if you're not, then just don't talk about it. Yeah, I was talking to Bill Addison about this. He has not written about the new Alice Waters restaurant in Los Angeles uh, because it says something. You know, he doesn't. I mean, he doesn't have to say a negative word. He just doesn't cover it. So I think you're. I I, I, I respect that that opinion. I think I, I think as con- media consumers, we like negative reviews. We're just like drawn to it. Well, unfortunately, that you know, as humans, humans. We're, we we're we're drawn towards negativity. It's like we're we're way more drawn towards the negativity than we are positivity. I mean, not not me personally. Yeah. But just that's a real yeah. thing. That's 
unfortunate. No, but it's, it's just true. It's uh, it's why uh, we slow down a car wreck. Like we should, we should. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, um, I want to talk about the four seasons and the what you've done there. Uh, very, very important space uh, in New York City architecture history, but also restaurant history. Uh, when you took it over and, and launched the pool and the grill uh, a few years back, I've not spoken with you since, but I've always I think about that space because it is you have to go there. Like listener, if you make it to New York, have a drink. Go and, and, and enjoy it. But how did you think about that that reboot and oh, taking it over? Massive. I mean, yeah. sim- similar to Teresi, similar to Carbone. Yeah. Right? I talk about, like, you know, our flagship restaurants, and which are basically Teresi is kind of taking its place next to Carbone and the grill um, than the original we'll, one. We'll get to that, yeah. They, they've all... They've all been this similar process, just like an incredible, an incredible deep dive into into a level of detail um, with the food being obviously incredibly important. But I think what we do differently is we get we get into so many things of details about a restaurant that that uh, uh, be, because we want it to feel we want you to feel that mm-hmm. thing what you're talking about. Like you got to go to the grill. Like we want you to come up the stairs of the grill. And have a martini yeah. at the grill bar, which what I do, and I do, I get lost. Mm-hmm. I get taken away, swept away to another place, and I, I love that so much. And getting the keys that day, that like oh getting the God, keys yeah. to the, the Four Seasons, well, that was like a two, three year process, right? Yeah, of, of just pitching, of not knowing we were going to get it, just yeah. pitching, pitching, and ideas, and pitching, and yeah. you know, I can't tell you how much time we spent in the rare books room at the at the library over here, and. Uh, you know, looking at old menus. Rebecca Federman, actually, give her some credit. She she really helped us. We wrote about Rebecca's work, um, and I'll link to in the show notes about the, oh, the collection amazing. there. The oh, Butthoff yeah. Butthoff collection. Yeah, the Butthoff collection is. Uh, we have a wonderful story from um, Adam Reiner about the Butthoff collection. Awesome. It's cool that you awesome. mentioned that. Yeah. The, God bless her and yeah. and people that take care of these artifacts. I mean, my hope my hope is that you know we're we're in there. We were in there. You know, countless uh, times and taking them and photocopying them and and my hope is that. If we're lucky enough to, you know, years from now to have one of our menus in there and have mm-hmm. a, someone looking at it and studying it, and, mm-hmm. and and we we just love that. So we spent a lot of time in there and all the old Four Seasons stuff and all the old comps at the time. We wanted people to feel like they're walking into that time when that restaurant was brand new and it felt new again. And so this conversation has been a little void of food, and it's intentional. I wanted to get some of your philosophy and your history, but. I want to hear about the grill. Like, what's going on at the grill in terms of culinary, uh, the program and all that? Um, well, I mean, we, we we do our seasonal change, you know. So, I mean, we're looking towards um, spring and Chef Alex up there. We we will go. He'll he'll present all of the, you know, we, we basically look at the grill is not something, you know, the, these these types of restaurants where, we look to change a lot of the menu, yeah. you know, because, you know, we want there to be a, a sort of familiarity. But, um, you know, we probably look at six, seven, eight dishes and how are we going to weave the season in or the sentiment in of the time. Um, so right now he's actually going to do a tasting in a couple of weeks from now. So that's how it works because, you know, your brain is in Teresi right now. You're under review. And, like, I I put, I put pulled that on you a little bit unexpectedly because I know when you have so many concepts, it's very hard to figure out what's going on in every concept. Well, he did tasting last week. He came down to Teresi yeah. for the first time because now now that we're running well, the chef came down with the sous chef, and they plated uh, three or four dishes mm. that they want to put on the spring menu. You know, he did a spring chicken with the – I think they call it – uh, spring chicken like Soltner after Andre Soltner. Oh, cool. Nice. A Riesling sauce. And then I think he was doing, um, he's going to work off spring garlic when he gets it and, and ramps. And he did, uh, he was doing a new pot pie. I think he wanted to focus on young, younger broccolis yeah. that he was working on. And one other thing that I can't remember, but, you know, that's how I, in, in New York, that's how, I do it. I give, like I said, I'm the, the chefs see me a lot and they yeah. have FaceTime with me. They'll have, the way we do it now is there's a seasonal tasting and, you know, we take, um, you know, Dan Har 
is is a guy that basically is a CEO of our company, but he started as a sous chef at Terezi. You know, wow, he, cool, yeah. cool progression for that guy. Yeah, incredible. Like to talk to him. Yeah, see, very good. You get see, him on the show. Sous chef to COO. Was he doing like was he doing like some super like homework on the weekends and stuff? I mean, the fact that I mean, like you know, Dan was like went to a great college, was like an art yeah. major, and was like just like started cooking food, and was like I can't, I can't. I got to cook food. You know what I mean? So he's a, he's a sort of rare scenario where like, yeah. we're like basically unlimited aptitude of a, of a person. That, that's the kind of guy you want to hire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But he gets involved because he's basically done every single opening with us. And, mm-hmm. and there's no one in, there's no one in the company that represents food. That's even close to understanding what me and Mario are thinking like on a dime and Dan. Yeah. He's, he's like the only one who could pretty much know exactly. And his sensibility is so, is so strong, particularly in Italian food, but within inside other cuisines. So he'll tee them up, get them in a decent spot to present. He's going around to every concept yeah, he's and there, talking yeah. to the chefs. Yeah, he'll, he'll tee them up okay. to make sure that they don't present something that's obviously going to be like, why'd you do that? Yeah. Um, do the guys get nervous when they're doing um, tastings for yeah, the bosses? You know, I mean, because I think. They, like I said, because they see us a good amount of the time, yeah. there's always a level of nervousness. But obviously, I, I mean, if they didn't have that, I'd be like kind of yeah. surprised. There's obviously a level of it, but you know, we yeah. do we do our best to break down those barriers. Well, yeah, but there, there's also just like pride, and they wanted to like every dish to be fire, of like, course, completely, like, of course. And you probably had a seafood because you had you said you had uh, a spring chicken, and you had a new broccoli pot pie, but you probably had a seafood or something. Yeah, yeah we had. Um, Beloved place. I mean, this the room again. You got to go just for the room. Um, a few more questions. Thank you for for joining and 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 hanging out and talking about all these topics. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. Um, Los Angeles. You're not there. No, no. Is that intentional? It seems like a place that could really use you guys. Or is it on the flip side very challenging to break in there? I don't foresee Los Angeles being a place that major food goes. Yeah, yeah. It, that's a very clear statement. Why so? I think it's uh, it's difficult for plenty of reasons. It's it's you know I get that a lot from our people from our bicoastal people who yeah. I've I've gotten it a lot actually Teresi lately. I'm just and they're just like bring it to I'm like well first of all I'm not bringing Teresi anywhere. Yeah. Um, there's never get there's never it's not like Carbone where we have a lot. No. There's there's never going to be another Teresi. You heard me say it here like yeah. it's a one of one. It's 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 it has it's the street it's the building it's what we do there like there there's never going to be another brick and mortar Teresi you know um, but L A yeah it's just it's I think it's it's too difficult for a bunch of reasons I'd like not to get into no it, it's it's fair and I appreciate you not ducking the question because it it is a challenging city I think people try to get out there and it gets it gets tough Andy Wang wrote a great piece about you and he said you walked the street. Um, looking for a space, and you ended up at the Puck Building. But did, were you thinking to go of going smaller? I know you mentioned it wasn't as profitable. So I, I had no idea of intention of leaving Two Fifty Mulberry, the original. You had the lease still. Um, w- yeah, I mean, I, I was running. Nice. I was running. That that was my <laughs> office. And oh my la- god, and you lab. have two feet. You have the space still. No, no, I don't have it now. Okay, you don't. Have but it now. the reason I'm in the new space yeah. is because. We couldn't come to terms. Oh man! Uh, it was actually the only space that we couldn't figure out during COVID. Um, <laughs> so after that, I mean, I started walking up and down Mulberry in like uh, yeah. May 2020. It was like if you were here, New York was like apocalypse. Now it was a, oh, I was here. It's yeah. a very uh, weird, very v- weird place. Very man. weird place to be. Yep. Super, super weird. I walked up and down Mulberry. I started handing my, I started writing my contact down because I thought, you know, maybe maybe people were looking to get out. Plenty of people were running. I mean, everybody was running. Yep. Everybody was running, right? Yeah. And it wasn't until, you know, being on Mulberry and Prince, we would never, me and Mara would never really walk above Prince because it really was just the church, mm-hmm. which, I mean, I, the church is how I could get into. Yeah, I've been to some, like, art uh, openings at that church. It's a crazy space. I mean, 1806, the original, first yeah. cathedral in New York City. Yeah. They built those walls. I mean, like, uh, Dagger John built those walls that surround the entire church yeah. with an Irish militia to protect against Bill the Butcher and the gangs in New York yep. in, the, in the early 1800s. There's an organ up there that's 200 years old. It's one of the nicest in the world. Like, I play, I play piano, so I played cool. that organ upstairs. Um, like, 2,000 pipes. Um, um, this little strip of Mulberry, I mean, then forget about the Puck Building being being its own thing. Like, yeah. that strip of Mulberry between the Puck and the church um, is so special. Mm-hmm. It's so, so special uh, of a piece that, like, when I look out the window, that's, I'm so excited to get the seats outside. Yeah. We're going to have, like, 16 seats outside. Oh, cool. Right on right on the street. Just it's, to sit there and, like, yeah. look. It's just so romantic. It's so New York. It's going to be a great spring and summer hang. 
What what do you, what do you think when uh, like a Gregory's coffee opens on in the neighborhood? Not to shade Gregory's, but or like a big box CVS. What do you what do you think about when you see that opening in downtown New York? You seem you're definitely a history head, and you 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 care about your city. I do my best to ignore. Ha! You know, I ignore and I and I, I concentrate on what on what I'm doing. What can I can do better to 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 do what I want to see. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? But anyway, I mean the puck is like I, I never imagined being there. And nor did I nor did nor did I ever imagine doing Terezi in some in a big space like that. It was honestly Jeff that convinced me mm-hmm. that it was the right move. And when I when I when I went up there and saw it all boarded up, yeah. I sent him a call. He basically he there was an opportunity. He flew in like a day or two later right away because he loved the space. And mm-hmm. Mario loved the space from Chef's Club. I yeah, never it was a Chef's Club. Yeah, it was and, Chef's and, Club. And Food and Wine Chef's Club. Yeah. It had a lot of like a rotating lists, and it was a cool space. Yeah, yeah. And it was a, it was a. I, I never wanted to be in a big space, but when I when I talked it out with mm-hmm. Jeff, and he deserves a lot of credit for this. He 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 really he saw he saw something so clear quickly. He I was like, you know, for me it was like how how do we go <laughs> from the darling awesome story of our beginnings mm-hmm. down there in, into this giant space. You could see this space standing outside. I'm like, I'm like, it just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. And he was like, dude, like, I think it's going to be perfect. Look at this bar. This bar is unbelievable. Look at this space. It's like all the things we love about old New York. He's like, we can, we can compartmentalize it. We can have the bar and the bar room. He's like, and back here, we can, we can separate this. He's like, we can, it can still be like, it can still have an intimacy. It, it's, it's a, it can still like, we'll, we'll open the kitchen up. It could still be like you're cooking for people in this, in this back more dining room. And then there's this, this private dining room as a separate kitchen. Did you think about Del Posto at all? When Del Posto was, was fire, when that restaurant was super doing I, its thing? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't think about Del no. Posto at all. I thought about. what did you think about? He, he pitched me on that vision in yeah. the space. He pitched me on that vision. Once I saw that, and he goes, you know what? It's probably not going to even be that that many seats. And when we did, when we laid it out and did the seat count, <laughs> the craziest thing about it is it's basically the same number of seats as Carbon. Yeah. Just in a way bigger space. It was the ceilings. I mean, it's, it's the ceilings. It's, it's the elevation. And, and it's the fact that the bar takes up a massive amount of yeah. space. The kitchen takes up a massive yeah. amount of space. The private dining room takes up a lot of space. So when you actually lay it out, yeah. it's like 75 seats. Right. And then when I did that in my head, I was like, I think I can do this. You can do the service. Yeah. You don't have to push 155 out. Or, exactly. Yeah. Like once the seat count gets into yeah. 90 towards 100, yeah. like I'm not doing that. No. Like, that's not what I. That's I'm, not what you signed up for. It's not what I signed up for. Um, yeah, and, it, and that's probably also why it's a tough table because it doesn't have a ton of covers, and you know, with all the other spots, you know, the private dining picking up. Uh, last question. One of my last questions. How do you stay fresh on the culinary side? Because you're so head down. You're in the everything. You're in the spreads. You're talking to Jeff. You're talking to Mario. But how do you stay like creative? Because like your job as the as the as the chef is to create dishes that are exciting. And yeah. So this is the biggest thing that I think I've I've been lucky to have success with. That I think a lot of chefs burn out because they're not able to find the inspiration button. They're not able to press that button. Exactly. That love, that yep. that do and that's that's where everything comes from, right? So I learned a long time ago that I was gonna have to start putting in new new inputs into my life and I couldn't I can't work the 14, 16 hour day repeatedly and not and not start to replace that with something that's gonna keep me fresh. So for me, it's other art forms. You know, it's it's there's if there's two things that I do the most of, um, during the morning and I, I refuse to give up my early mornings. Like now I'm doing the restaurant, so I'm I'm up later and I'm up very late at night now. Mm-hmm. But like normally when things settle down, I'll go back to my AM life. And I either do I'll either do a, basically a martial art mm. or I do music and I play the piano. And I have a grand piano in my house and I, I do those things in the morning. Um I, I meditate, um, I do practices. Um, I won't. Yeah. I will not start my day if I haven't done touched these things. Mm-hmm. And those, I'm. I'm infinitely inspired by the the music on the music end, and the, even the martial art, and the people that I work yeah. work with are just like they're experts. They're so they they pump me up. They give my brain fresh. I, what I think it's about is fresh synopsises and yeah. f- and fresh touch points from people that don't do what I do at all. All the words are new. All the techniques are new. And it just it just gets me 
it puts me in a place where I can I can enter my day like with with this with a fresh alive enthusiasm. Rich, it's just like you know when you're at your trainer or you're at the gym and they're like, don't do the same thing every day. You you have to like vary it up. So it sounds like the multidiscipline approach is really how you stay fresh. How then how does that translate to the cooking? Because you've done your meditation practice or you've you've done some jujitsu in the morning. How does that make you actually create like a uh, multifini or something cool on the plate? That process is very difficult to describe in words. Yeah. You know, like the the best thing that I could say for anyone is, you know, the reason I do those things is because it, it's not like I, I would never I would never lift weights in the morning. Like I, I it, if not like for not for a whole hour, if I mm-hmm. would have do it for a small amount of time. Like I would never like those are things like those things that I do, even though they're training, like they're legitimate art forms. And not the music and the martial arts. They're legitimate by people who are experts. Like I trained with Hiram Gracie and Henslow's nephew. Nice. Like these are experts and, and and experts that are so passionate what they do, they're able to put my mind into a place that when I go when I walk to the I live near the Union Square market on purpose. So I'm always in that's another thing that I do. I purposely live near the market so I can always be in touch yeah. with what excites me. And I'll go to the market with a blank slate. And if I've I've done I've done what I'm supposed to do every morning, which I do when I go there. It just comes. Yep. No, I get it. And you explained it well for something that's very hard to explain. Thank you. Because you have, uh, you know, 15 plus 20 years, 15 plus, what are you at? Like years of experience, CAA trained, worked with Baloo. We went through all that stuff. So clearly it's it's there. It's just like a beacon. My mind cool. is like, a, you know. Rich, we asked all guests in the Taste Podcast if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world. What would that book be? Um, well, I've never made a cookbook. I know you haven't. So I'm going to make one. Really? Yeah. And Let's do it. Yeah, I'm going to make one. And I I think I like, you know, I, I want to weave all the things that I'm passionate about and how I do things into, yeah. into it. Because there's uh, there's so many stories that haven't been told, like just talking to you, some of them, they're all well, scratching the surface. And yeah. I think I've been I've been waiting for the right time that that in, in life where I feel like it's time to kind of tell all these things. And I'm, I'm approaching that time soon. I think uh, my follow-up and final question is, is it is it a book of pasta and Italian cooking? Well, I mean, Italian cooking, 100%. It has to be that, right? I mean, it'll, it'll be a lot of it'll be a lot of what Teresi's about. It's Teresi's vibe. Teresi's lifestyle. Yeah, it'll be a lot of Teresi. I'm excited to, to see that book because I think thank it'll you. be a good one. Rich Teresi, thank you so much for joining the Taste Podcast. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.